You're listening to Safer Travel Talk, the podcast to inform, inspire, and provide insight into the world of travel. Jonathan Tate-Harris joined us to discuss his experiences while traveling in extreme and often hostile environments, while also sharing some key pieces of advice for anyone thinking of embarking on a traveling experience. I'll try to keep it into nutshells because unfortunately I've been around long enough for it to be uh, quite a long drawn out affair. But um, my travel experience is based on the fact that my career is, uh, I've been an army officer, a police officer, a UN war crimes investigator, and then a freelance war war crimes investigator. That has all involved me going to places that a lot of people would describe as downright hostile. Um, A lot of places that were out and out war zones Um, But what's crucial, I think, is that a lot of the places I've been to have been extremely diverse and well off what you might call the normal tourist trail. In fact, until recently, I probably was the only British person in history not to have set foot in Spain. That's that's been a recent addition to my travel portfolio. The rest of it has been in quite weird places where one needs to actually give some thought to how you can either enjoy a holiday or work effectively, um, and just general travel, just just generally travel in a safe and secure way, where you can actually concentrate on having fun and and value rather than worrying about what happens next. Mm, definitely. How much would you say um, that relies on the mindset and the preparation? Mindset is important, but I think I think you need to define mindset in the context of safe travel. Uh, mindset implies that people are, are of a certain mindset by nature. I think you can actually change that. You can actually make yourself um, think and act in a way that is safe and secure without it actually um, overwhelming all of your other instincts to, to have fun and, and enjoy and, and, and gain value from the experiences you're seeing and you know, going through and the, the, getting the most out of the places you travel to without safety and security becoming all-consuming. Mm. I think that's a danger, and certainly when we speak to, to people who are maybe inexperienced travellers, uh, we're talking to them about safety when they go abroad for maybe the first time, then it can be a bit overwhelming for them, and they can you know, find the focus too much on the safety, and that it can be detrimental to their holiday. Um, what do you think is, uh, you know... Have you got any tips or is there anything that you think is is really important that people should try and be aware of before they go traveling? Preparation and knowledge. Um, We all read books before we go to places. Um, We look at the television. We look at YouTube these days. We're constantly searching through social media. YouTube, for instance, is full of a wash, um, full of a wash. Um, It's a wash with... uh, reports from say people who live in London, um, Americans living in London sending uh, messages to uh, American travelers saying 10 things not to do when you're in London, 10 things to do whilst you're in London. And I'm sure looking at the number of hits, these are things where people are desperate for information, but very few of them actually talk about how to get the simple safety measures sorted out and also, particularly, they don't add to any um, methods or any suggestions or, or ways that people can actually do that without intruding on their holiday. They, they actually 
make scare videos that put you off going mm. to a place rather than show you how to go to a place. Mm. So I think if you prepare well, then your safety and security generally will run almost like a sort of background activity and it'll come naturally to you rather than you having to keep fretting about, oh, should I go here? Should I go there? You'll mm. also know how to change that um, your, your sort of safety settings um, whilst you're actually in a place because situations do change and you'll pick up on how to actually get the information you need um, as you're going along as well as beforehand. Mm. I think we, we years ago when we, we started the charity, obviously in 2002, but we went through a, a fair few different processes of how we could get the information across. And it was to start off with, it was bullet points of do's and don'ts. Um, but then we realised that, you know, it's it's more about telling a story. If you can engage people with how they understand that situation and try and get the, the awareness raised so they understand that this might happen, but it could be a variety of situations, but be aware of this scenario, then they can apply that knowledge to different measures or different scenarios that they find themselves in. And that can really make a difference on their safety because it's otherwise they're looking for this, I must not do this. And they're looking for that specific scenario rather than trying to see the, the overview, if you like. Precisely. And I, I, think, I think people struggle to actually make an accurate assessment of what, what, a, what the risk in a particular, any particular place may be. I think they struggle with that. They also seem to think that they all come from a land, whether it's you know Great Britain or whether they're Americans or whether they're South Africans or whatever, they all live, think that they live in a land that is completely and entirely safe. And it is only when you set foot out of your own country that you become at risk. That's not true. You are at risk at home and you apply without thinking safety rules. You don't even realize you're doing it because it's your home place or nation or whatever you, however you want to um, phrase it. So when you go abroad, you need to make the same assessments that you make subconsciously already. And knowing what the risks are, knowing if they're different, um, and that's all a little bit of research means you can actually take a lot of the things that you do at home and just apply them to where you're going. Mm. Some countries appreciate, I appreciate are very different, but the mainstream can be dealt with by normal, the normal common sense that you apply at home. And that's very often forgotten about. You are not <laughs> going to another planet. Completely agree. One of the phrases that we use is common sense needs to become common practice. And yes, it's, precisely. it's, as soon as people leave their the home country or they go on holiday, they think that the rules don't apply or for some reason common sense goes out of the window. And, you know, they, they'd be walking in the middle of the street or they, they wouldn't be, you know, looking for, for, for things that are happening around them. They just seem to put these blinkers on and think we're on holiday and we're in a completely different world and everything should bend to our will. I've, I've found that to be... Um, to happen in some in some scenarios and certainly with some kind of, of demographics of travelers that they just for some reason they, they just think they're going into another world and who they are as an individual seems to go out of the window they've almost switched off while they've gone on holiday and then they come back from holiday and re-engage with common sense common practice and who they are and what they've learned in the UK or from wherever they're from I wish I had money for every time somebody said to me <laughs> I got into a 
into a really dilapidated taxi with a lunatic driver who took me somewhere at 100 miles an hour and I was terrified and I can't believe I did that but I didn't say anything because I didn't want to upset the driver <laughs> well you wouldn't do it at home and I appreciate things are slightly different but even if you can't speak the language you can always make it known that you want them to slow down or even stop mm. and get out mm. um, it's not that difficult so why why is it rude in one country and not in another yet people who have a sane mind can't seem to get one to one response to move to their new environment so mm. they just sit there and, and unfortunately every year the hospitals around the world fill up with tourists who've been in taxi accidents mm. or car crashes <laughs> terrific Fact. Oh, terrific um so that takes us on to you know learning a few phrases of the, the language or you know trying to make an effort with the local people and i suppose with technology now it's easy for people just to not take so much time to learn the language because they think they can use Google Translate or they think they can use an app to to, to make their life easier. Um, what would your, your opinion be on that? I think in most countries around the world, not only is it extremely, extremely polite and respectful to use something, an attempt, but it also has a very positive effect that it leads to a lot of funny... Uh, arm-waving, smiling, laughing at each other. It's a really great way of breaking the ice. Um, we lived in the Netherlands and my, my wife, who'd learned very carefully to, to say, excuse me, do you speak English in Dutch? Walked, <laughs> walked into somewhere, a shop or something like that, and forgetting, remembering the difficult bit, she actually forgot the language and she, she just said in Dutch, excuse me, do you speak Dutch, please? So, of course, most Dutch people speak excellent English, but the Dutch just thought it was the funniest thing that because they'd never been asked if they spoke Dutch before <laughs> in Dutch or in any language. And it led to a really great sort of breakdown in that initial chilliness. That you know. and, um, and I think, you know, the different people around the world view things differently, but it's generally a great icebreaker to have that little moment of respect and just hello, goodbye, thank you, thank you, that's, you know, and, um, sorry, excuse me, um, it's just a way of, you know, getting somebody's attention without shouting something in English, as we do, we shout loudly and slowly in English, assuming that people will pay attention. I think secondly, you know, when it comes to, oh, we can use technology, and I know there are, you know, you've got Google Translate now, and, 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 other apps that you can speak into and it will translate. I have grave concerns about those. Um, first of all, they're inaccurate. They will only exchange lists of words. And if you apply something that's in context or you say something that is um, perhaps an English figure of speech, it's no use saying, well, there you go, Bob's your uncle, because it'll translate Robert is your uncle. It won't have a, you know, it won't, it doesn't understand that much. That's an extreme example, but you know, that's how unreliable they are. The second thing is the quickest way to inflame any new meeting, particularly in a group environment or when you're actually quite close to somebody, and I'm, I'm completely discounting the social distancing rules at the moment, is to wave your iPhone around. If you want to upset somebody, stick the phone in their face, 
without them realizing what you're doing. If they think they're being recorded, they will be instantly, not phys physically aggressive to you, but they will become aggressive, their heart rate will start pounding, and they will immediately go onto a into a defensive posture. Because it is, the phone is probably more of a trigger to violence than even standing there in the Queensbury rules you know, sort of fists up, ready to fight type position. Mm. Um, they are extremely intimidating things. And if people don't understand that all you're trying to do is, because if you're having to use the device, you probably haven't bothered to learn, you know, buongiorno, um, non parlo italiano. Mm. You know, I'm sorry, good morning or good day. I haven't learned, bothered to learn Italian. Uh, can we use this? They'll just get it that you're sticking your phone in the face for some reason. Mm. And I think there's potential for real problems there. Fine if, if you get to the stage where you can perhaps, you know, write what you want to say out if it's complicated. And then, but go through the simple phrases and laughter and joking phase first. They'll appreciate it and then they'll happily work with the phone. Mm. But the waving a phone around, I also think, and this is possibly me being older, I also think walking around with a phone in your hands, looking at it, is almost bordering on rude. Yeah, you, completely by, agree. With the phone being the um, focus of your attention, you're dismissing the people and the land in which they reside. Mm. Yeah, but absolutely. I'm old-fashioned. No, I can completely agree. It's also going to affect your, your level of awareness and your, your safety um, yeah. in regards to, to, to what you're seeing around you and what could potentially happen. Well, that's um, why we keep seeing in the newspapers people with the phone in the hand and now traffic statistics all the time because they're, they're in casualty departments around mm. the world. Mm. I've seen, seen people arrive in new destinations or you know, turn up at the bus station or at the airport and they're on the phone looking for the, you know, where they're going to stay or how to get yeah. somewhere or you know, get to, to point B. And it's, it's just think, well, why haven't you done that beforehand? Yeah. Why, why aren't you prepared? It goes back to that knowledge and preparation and that, yeah. you know, make, make yourself, make it easy for yourself. So people seem to, well, to make it as difficult as possible when they go yeah. traveling. One, one day, oh, well, um, when was it? Uh, it's two or three years ago now, but in Serbia, watching some, some of our cousins from across the Atlantic walking around central Belgrade with their, some sort of mapping program, actually say, giving the instructions of where they have to go out loud in English. So they might as well have carried a you know, big target on a flag um, because not, not only is it the phone that's giving it away, it's also they're, being, they're telling everybody these are definitely not locals because they're watching this, listening to this in English. Mm, yeah. Silliness. So how much of a, a risk do you think is, that is if, um, if, say, they're in one of the European countries or they're, they're somewhere that's a, a popular tourist destination? I think and this, is the, this is the irony of this, this great European um, continent, is that you're possibly more at risk. Whilst everybody tends to, in tourist zones, has a knowledge of English, the, the fact is you stand out more as an English speaker in countries where you know lots of countries they people will learn english because it's the world language perhaps arguably but in europe it's not the case because you know a lot of italians will speak german you know if you go to switzerland or austria they'll 
switch into Italian, you know, into, well, Switzerland's got four languages. Um, the French, particularly where it borders Germany, will flip from French into German. So, you know, they have more than enough um, linguistic capability to never once use English. So if you just arrive and, and start blathering away in English, you'll stand out far more than if you just mm. arrive and stay stum, basically. Mm. English is fine, and they'll, they'll very quickly switch into it, but you need to engage in something that's local and familiar rather than just launching straight into the, um, you, you, we, you know, we, we, we do shout out, do you speak English? But we really should shout out, you speak English, of course you do, let's use that. And unfortunately, that's an incredibly rude way of going, going about things and immediately puts people in an uncomfortable, not necessarily threatened to your security, but you can guarantee for everybody that finds that uncomfortable, there will be people around whose interest will be triggered by the awkwardness of your your mm. way abroad, the way you, you're behaving. Mm. Well, certainly you know, you it's going to... identify yourself as targets. Yeah, you're going to raise your, your, your level of risk and you're going to... Opportunists operate, I suppose, more than likely in, in, uh, in popular tourist destinations, certainly anywhere that people are going for events or for festivals that are happening or anything like that you know there's there's a huge huge influx of opportunists that are looking With to take YouTube advantage now, we have the opportunity to to look at where we're going in in, in places of where we're going in lots of different contexts whether it's to a um to a, a festival in in uh, i think there's a big one in niche in serbia um you know where there's certainly festivals in croatia but wherever you're going um, you can have a look and see what it's like during the festival, probably from last year. You can look and see what the tourist areas are like. You can also find what it's like in the non-tourist areas. And you mm. can see what the locals wear. Do the locals walk around with big rucksacks on their back? No, they don't. Mm. Do they wear the baseball caps on backwards? No, they don't. Do they wear Manchester United football shirts? Um, why anybody would do that, I have no idea anyway. But, um, <laughs> you know... You, have a look you don't necessarily want to try to dress like a local you know i always think it's rather strange when i go to the middle east and some professional uh, travelers will try to dress in a middle eastern fashion you don't look silly you just look like a, a non-local dressing as a local and making yourself look foolish but what you can do is dress in a way that first of all doesn't upset the locals and also doesn't stand out mm. but i also have colleagues who have friends and colleagues from work times that have worn things that make them look completely out of place rather than just being somebody knowledgeable who's traveling mm. if the distance difference is obvious uh, so, i think there's, there's also a point to be made there about um being comfortable and wearing your things a lot of people who go in traveling for the first time or they're going backpacking they you know they'll get a new rucksack they'll have new shoes they'll have new clothes and you know they set off and it's the first time that they've worn them in um so inevitably they've got blisters after a week they've got to carry you know probably 25 30 kilos of kit in the back um and they've got to walk around with that you know and it's if they're going away for a significant period of time then you know there's inevitably stuff that you come you you, you bring back from from your traveling experience that you've not worn or you've not used um exactly. so I think it's really important that people, you know, wear things when they go traveling that they're comfortable and familiar. 
Well, I think also um, you've got to be aware culturally. I know there are issues with female travellers when it, you know, particularly to Muslim countries, but it isn't just Muslim countries. Um, I know that you know if you if you're a female traveller and you go into a church in Italy, you will be expected to to cover yourself reasonably well. You know, it, it's not about sort of going in with a um, you know full burqa on, but your shoulders need to be covered um, and your head. They they expect a sort of lightly worn scarf. I think in most places, um, it's not something that really has ever affected me um, directly because I haven't. I don't think I've ever travelled to the churches in Italy with my wife, but um, certainly it's something that I'm aware of. So you, you need to just know. Um, wearing shorts, you know, a lot of people find it very uncomfortable if they're sitting next to a man or a woman on a plane with a, a person's in shorts. You know, some uh, cultures, and it's not distant cultures to, to this land, you know, it's other, other Europeans will find it very weird sitting next to somebody who's got you know, horribly muscly thighs or, you know, if it's a particularly sensitive, if they're not used to sitting next to a, I don't know, 21 year old um, woman, you know, with her legs uncovered because she's wearing shorts, no matter how respectable the shorts are, mm. it isn't necessarily something with which people feel very comfortable. And a three or four hour flight, that's a long session of discomfort. Mm. Um, you need to be aware of it. Mm, certainly. Um, so if we look at, you know, flying and uh, going going away, so one of the preparations things is obviously they'll be taking out travel insurance um, and they'll be they'll be making sure that they're covered for any experiences that that they want to have. Um, so taking out extra insurance if they want to go scuba diving or, you know, skydiving, anything like that. Or if they're going away to the Alps, they're going away snowboarding or skiing, then certainly you need to look at getting a snow card or a carte neige, as they call it in France. Um, is there any tips that you, you'd have when it's looking at insurance and how to, to maybe, um, if you have to trigger that insurance, is there, is there anything in your experience that you could, could share? Well, never underestimate the horror of finding out that you're not thoroughly well covered. Um, my daughter helped my son with his travel insurance before he set off to the Far East recently. And um, being a young man, he, he wasn't long before he triggered the need for the insurance in that he, he claims that he uh, fell over whilst getting coffee and the floor, it had been raining and the floor in the coffee shop was slippery. But anyway, however it happened, he ended up in a hospital. And whilst his treatment, he said, was excellent, you know, they gave him a full top to bottom MRI scans, um, you name it. it and of course, each one of these was vastly expensive to the tune of several thousands of pounds. And although, of course, they didn't actually kidnap him, it was made pretty clear that although they wanted to release him, he wasn't going anywhere till his insurance had actually, uh, company had actually done the business and put the money into their bank account. Now, of course, if he'd stood up and walked out, then he would have been allowed to leave, but uh, you can guarantee there would have been all sorts of subtle little things done to make sure that they got their money. I don't know whether he had his passport put into safekeeping, we'll call it, um, mm -hmm. or what exactly happened. But he was, he was certainly, you know, he's a bright young fellow. He was under no illusions that he wasn't going anywhere until the insurance was sorted. And the insurance company, because he paid extra, I think they, they provided a very good service. You know, the, 
all the time he was in there, they were working in the background to get this thing sorted out. Mm. I can just picture the mess that could be and how it could devastate your holiday um, if you were to go there or business travel, to go there with a poor cover where they said, oh, no problem at all, you pay it and we'll settle up when you get back or something mm. awkward mm. like that. That's probably mm. an extreme, but you know, luckily his was one night of care. If he'd been there for a week, then the figures would have been huge. I think the company that represented him probably would have sorted it out just as well as for one night. But what a holiday wrecker if you haven't got that insurance. Mm. And for a few pounds more, it isn't expensive. No, no, it's, it's peace of mind. What you're spending on the holiday. Well, of course, it's so. certainly things like that are peace of mind for me. So it's, I would rather have the security of knowledge that I am fully covered because that's going to help my confidence. It's going to help where I am. It's going to um, put me in a safer position mentally as well as as well as actually being covered in case anything does happen so certainly it is worth spending that you know because money's always an issue when you're going traveling you always want to spend your money wisely and spend it on the things that you want to enjoy doing but i i, I do say i do agree that you know insurance is is vitally important and also i think that one of the and i've made this mistake myself underestimating exactly what the costs might be so you then go and say, oh, well, I've got £100,000 worth of cover. That means I've got £100,000 worth of you know, s support. It's probably not enough. I, I bought some um, travel insurance that was for car breakdown. And I spent you know, a lot of money, really, I suppose, on getting it. I looked at it and I thought that's going to be no problem. But then when the car actually did break down, all of the little local extras that you didn't expect, like it being £500 to be towed a quarter of a mile off a motorway. Um, mm. You know, and all of those just added up so dramatically that I got my fingers burnt. And it, it meant that the first week of my holiday was spent arguing with a very large, prominent motoring breakdown and insurance service in the UK, who you would think would be brilliant. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to name them, but I, I inherited my father's membership. So we've been members since 1954 and they didn't give a fluffy stuff about it. Um, I was trying to think of a non-swear word then. That was pretty, that's pretty good, good enough. They really didn't that's care. You know, we were just, we were yeah. just, we were just somebody who didn't have the, the right level of insurance. They wouldn't, I even offered to upgrade whilst I was there, but that wasn't allowed. Um, right, because it had all, you know, the incident had already taken place. Exactly. You know, you can't insure against something that's already happened, sir, I think, with their words. And despite having what I thought sounded like a great policy, it wasn't, I simply hadn't anticipated, um, you know, and also my car and, um, and boat were just dumped at the side of a road. They weren't placed in a secure compound. Um, I wasn't able to drive the car onwards or home and ended up having to pay a private company to come and collect it from the UK to come to the centre of um, France, collect the car and drive it home out of my own pocket. Um, oh, wow. So it ruined that first week of the holiday and it caught me out. So the lesson here is that anticipate things you can't possibly anticipate when it comes to insurance. Mm. There's a there's another point. We've rented cars or hired cars in, in many different holidays and done a couple of driving holidays. And... 
you know, m most of them in, well, all of them, I suppose, um, Europe, uh, over in America and all of this, and the, the driving rules are different. But I have never had any lessons or any advice when picking up a car, a car hire. Um, it's always been, have you got the insurance? Do you want to pay extra? That's fine. You've got everything. Here are the keys. Off you go. So there's never any any information provided or in my experience that has given me well we drive on the other side of the road make sure you go this way around the roundabouts make sure that you know these are the stop signs this is how you work we were in um in canada and we were driving around a few different cities in canada and the the rules for the road were different in different cities you know, the, whether it's, the, you know, it's, they've got the red light, but you can still turn or, you, you know, you can turn to the right or you can turn whichever way. And these you have to pick up on the fly and you don't know. And it's 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 just it seems a bit of an issue to me. But I don't know in your experience whether there's anything that you could, you know, tips wise or information or anywhere that you know that provides that kind of information. Well, I'm a big fan of YouTube. So I think if you if you look on YouTube, um, of course, you'll always get a video posted by some uh, go faster young boy racer who, who will be rolling around. But there will be videos of people just driving around in their own environments normally. So they're taken from behind the wheel to just sit in their cars online effectively mm -hmm. and just see what it's like to be driven on the wrong side of the road from a from a you know a point of view of when you go somewhere where they when they drive on the right i've never found it a problem converting i've gone to change gear occasionally and actually press the window winder because you you tend to use the same hands to start off with but the the movement from one side to the other i've never found difficult um a lot of the local rules you can actually pick up if you do some reading the, the no turn right on a stoplight and certainly in the united states um that changes depending on which state you're in. Florida, you can turn right on a light, but there will be a sign on some of the lights where you can't turn right, but there will be a sign. So if you know, if you don't, if you know the fact that if you don't see a sign, you can turn right on a red, great, that's mm. your problem solved. Mm. Those also, all of those sort of things will be in the sections of, in fact, they're the boring sections of travel guides Florida, for instance, will have pages and pages about Mickey Mouse, but then there'll only be a few pages at the back end of the book. You know, when you when you when you cannot read any longer, that's when they'll put in the really that's important the, stuff. Hmm, so true. look at that. Um, judge also a little bit, and I know this is a uh, this is um, stereotyping, but look at where you're going and anticipate the the nature of the motorist you're going to get. If you go to Germany, you will get a lot of extremely new high performance cars um, and you might be driving faster than you've ever driven in your life in the um, overtaking lane of the autobahn and you're exhilarated by it and then all of a sudden you will see the flashing lights and the indicator on the car behind um, who wants to do 130 miles an hour and you're at 110 and have never driven so quickly <laughs> you can expect that you can expect chaos in some countries but the chaos is manageable um, I've driven in, uh, I don't know, well, Rome is always the butt of people's jokes. I've driven in Albania, which is the butt of people's jokes. Um, I've driven in China, which I found was probably the craziest of the lot because nobody observed the central white line in the road at all. You know, you, you, you could over, 
well, you just overtook anywhere. But they're all manageable and doable as long as you know, you know, what the road holds um, in front of you. And, mm. you know, I, I, I once taught a course in defensive driving in um, Kampala in Uganda. And just getting the concept of defensive driving, the drivers were fine about when I got them to talk and speak out what was coming up. You know, they would say, oh, I've got a motorcyclist coming in from the left or, you know, pedestrians on the right. Now, even when I got them to, you know, what, so what's the threat then? They say, well, that, that child could walk out into the road or that motorcyclist might pull out without looking. If I then said to them, what are you going to do? Their initial, their initial reaction was, well, I'm just going to keep driving at the rate I'm doing and see what happens. That's completely wrong. One should immediately identify this risk and then check yourself mm. and approach the situation at a speed where you can revolve, um, respond as the situation unfolds. But in some countries where the road figures for accidents are horrific, it is just the case that they keep ploughing on until the collision occurs. If you're driving on those roads, you can do so safely, but you have to have a defensive driving mindset. And that needs thinking about beforehand. And I'm going here again, back to preparation. Mm. Just know yeah. what you're going to encounter. And then you can encounter and deal with it as it unfolds. Um, so as a charity, we would never say, we're a great advocate, obviously, for safety, but we would never say to anybody, don't go anywhere. It's, it's personal choice. It's freedom uh, to, to travel wherever they wish to travel. Um, what would your, your thoughts be on that? What, what would your advice be for anybody who wants to travel? Well, I don't want to sound like a big sort of clever dick here, but I've traveled to some of the world's most dangerous places. Mostly they've been that dangerous when I've been there because there's been an, an ongoing armed conflict. I certainly, I'm certainly of the same mindset as I think um, you know the foundation is that you should you should go where you want and certainly never be told you can't do this and, uh, and I think we probably don't like being told you can't do you can't go here you can't go there. Um, some things you do have to take into account when um, I we talked about insurance. If the and this is a really crucial thing to look at always look at the foreign and commonwealth office travel advice because if they are saying don't go there or essential travel only then your insurance won't be worth anything they'll let you pay the money but they won't pay out i think in almost all circumstances if you cannot actually justify why you're there um, i had to go for a work purpose to the northeastern part of kenya once not long after the attack at uh, Golisi, well, I can't remember the name of the university. There was an awful attack, but they, they killed an awful lot of people at this university. Um, now, my journey, we could have argued it was essential, but I met British tourists who were in the same hotel, only a few. That, um, the hotel in, um, in Khalifi, which was the name of the place I went to, um, Garissa University comes back to me, but there were people there and they wouldn't have been insured. There was... You know, I'm sure they had a lovely couple of weeks holiday. Place was deserted, so they would have personal attention from everybody, but uninsured. Um, so um, Al Shabab was the name of the tourist uh, terrorist group, and uh, you know you need to take that into account. If you're not insured, I, I would say that you're travelling, uh, placing yourself in great, great.
great, um, not danger, but you're vulnerable if you're not insured. Mm. Um, and people, if, if they know you're not insured, they will take advantage of it um, if they know. But um, no, go to most places. Um, I do think, and I come across them occasionally. I've, I've been in, I was in Libya um, and there was fighting going on and I met some English tourists um, who just thought it would be fun. And yes, there are there are elements of um, there is a name for it that they have. It's a sort of dark zone tourism places, but it's mm. you know just after a war is one thing, um, but during the actual conflict, you don't know enough about the situation to be able to travel safely. That's the trouble. You can't actually get your hands. Um, there are also massive implications as well from the point of view of you know. Uh, security agencies wanting to know why you're going off to Syria while there's an armed conflict on because you know it's um as we know from from the news there are a lot of people who went there for perhaps what you would argue would be the wrong reasons and if you're going there just because you're curious and you think it's going to be exciting you're probably there are probably other ways of satisfying that mm. uh, that urge rather than going to somewhere like Syria when there's full f combat in in uh, full flow. Um, other places, you know, the, 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 where we, why why would anybody want to go somewhere where there is something completely out of their control um, occurring? And not just war, but there's, you know, disease with Ebola and things like that. Um, you know, some places just need a little bit of thought. Hopefully with most of these places, you'll be able to go there again one day mm. um, when it is safer. Um, or certainly in post-conflict regions, which are fascinating. It's very clumsy to go there and look like a tourist who's actually, uh, it's the term voyeur of other people's misery. And the, I've seen a lot of those people in places where they go along just to see how bad it's been. Um, wow. It's fairly safe, but you know, their cultural experience, you, you're, you're meeting people who were on their knees with the devastation and the misery that's been heaped upon them because of a conflict or, you know, some sort of something that's gone wrong, um, you know, the natural disaster. Or so don't go there looking. Or I would say, we, you know, at the start we said don't, don't avoid somewhere just because you just weigh up why you're going and, um, you know, and think, well, you know, would I want to be, treated as a, an object of curiosity um, mm. by some tourists. And I, I think that might affect your travel plans. Yeah. So. Sorry, uh, but does that, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think Great. So. Um, so we're coming to the end, hopefully, fingers crossed, of uh, the COVID-19 pand pandemic. Um, how do you think travel's going to change after this? I think it's going to take a while to start or for people to start feeling comfortable about traveling again. We, we know that the virus is still very active. We keep getting reports of that. Um, two months ago, as a, as a Londoner now, I was right in the middle of, of the virus, you know, outbreak. It was, you know, the rest of the country was sitting looking here and thinking, you know, well, it's only it's a London thing. Well, now the reverse is true. We're looking out and, and the, the rest of the country is finding it very difficult. Whereas in London, I think now we've had a couple of days without any new cases and um, mm. and so on and so forth. And, and 
whilst it's very tragic, the majority of the deaths are, you know, in very cert within certain parameters, etc. So one can see a change that is actually, I think, going to change across the world. And again, that will be a very varied rate. Um, you know, parts of the world are just going into the nightmare, whereas I like to hope that we're coming out of it. Mm. So travel-wise, um, one has to think about how one's going to do it. I wouldn't be happy at the moment jumping on a plane. In three months' time, my view may well have changed completely. I want to go abroad this year, and I, you know, as long as the rules will allow, allow me to do it, um, it might be the case that I drive, uh, you know, across Europe to go to where I want to go on holiday this time. Um, whereas last, you know, I've driven it before. I know it's achievable. It means that I know that I'm going to be in a place with the people that I, you know, can trust. Um, and when I get there, I, you know, I, I, I know the sort of layout already. It's a place I'm, with which I'm familiar. So I know how I think it'll be. It'll probably be a lot quieter than I can picture it, but, um, I think it's achievable. I think there are steps we can, you know, from our own experience of, of going through it here, we can we can put in place to a certain self-help, you know, hmm. maybe take your own, you know, knife and fork with you to a restaurant, whatever it is you do, um, marry that up to what I think will likely to be reasonable restrictions that they've been put under. And I think most most countries will have a sensible approach and be doing that. There will be some countries that have clearly, from what we see on television, not only will they not have anything in place, but the people, um, whilst you know, the, just the sort of people we might want to meet, they might not be the sort of people that really give a, you know, going back to the term I was desperate for earlier, but couldn't <laughs> think of something, um, who might not really either get it or they might have been. Uh, we must never forget governments sometimes very, very deliberately poorly educate the, their people about healthcare mm. uh, for lots of different reasons. Sometimes it's cultural, you know, th th there are myths. We all hear these horror stories about, um, you know, people believing in witchcraft and, um, you know, and, and I'm not talking about a sort of freaky, um, you know, old colonial joke about something, but there are large tranches of people throughout Africa that still believe in witchcraft and the, the way they approach healthcare have, takes that into account. So we have to know these things and mm -hmm. governments are, in a lot of places will not educate their people. So is now the time to be going to them? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, that's a time for another, you know, a visit on another time. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, I think we still need to be very careful um, with travel. Um, and I think you have to ask yourself, you know, do I, do I want to travel? And to, when I choose my destination, am I going to get the most out of it at the moment? Mm. Um, if it's only just a question of getting a tick in the box, then you might. Um, you also have a duty to every other soul on the planet not to roam around um, itching your travel itch um, or scratching your travel itch whilst infecting everybody that comes into contact with you and unfortunately we know that a lot of the problems we've encountered here in the UK are down to the you know some super travelers who were flitting around the world infected um, mm. that is a responsibility we have to everybody else on the planet as an individual so I think we need to bear that in mind mm. that's that's other people's safety not just your own mm, completely agree um, so just to, to, to summarize, I suppose, is there, 
For anyone who's thinking about traveling, maybe on a gap year or they're going away for an extended period of time, is there is there a few pieces of advice you would you would recommend or a few things yeah. that you think they could do? When your parents are worried, let them be worried. They will be. Um, I recently had an interesting conversation with a lady colleague who went to get a new passport because her 32-year-old son had gone to India on a business trip and she wanted a passport so that she could go out there to help him if something went wrong. Now, whilst I tell this story with my tongue wedged firmly in my cheek at how silly I think that is, never underestimate how much and for how long your parents worry about you. So when they offer advice, it is actually worth listening to because it's for the right reasons they're giving it. So even if you think you know best, and I, you know, I was once the gap year travel age, and I thought I knew best, um, listen to what they've got to say. If they offer a help, particularly if it's really constructive help, like putting you on a day's safe travel course or offering something that you know will give you some knowledge or some advice about preparation and Preparation is all about knowing, it's intelligence, not your own intelligence, but getting intelligence that helps you know the place you're going to. Um, absolutely vital, absolutely vital. And don't turn any help whatsoever down, as much as it might seem a sort of unnecessary thing. My son, I gave as an example with his endurance, it was because my daughter, he didn't want to listen to me advising it because I was just a boring old dad. But his sister advised him and it was great advice and it paid off for him mm. because the insurance company paid out. So listen, um, it's a pain, I know, but while you're, while you are traveling, have a very reliable and simple, because I know you don't want to spend your fun times yakking away to relatives who are just what you think are being a nuisance, but have a check-in procedure. Um, also, before you go, have a procedure it's great if it's written down but if it's recorded somehow just or discussed in detail but have a in the military they're called actions on um i suppose you could in civilian terms call them the what ifs have a plan of what ifs you know if you say you'll check in every two days what's the plan if you don't check in what do mum and dad do at home if you don't check in um and how could, you know, what's the backup plan for what you, you put into place? I know it's great to roam free and do your own thing, but with communications as they are now, the first time I went abroad was to Kenya in 1983. It was 25 pounds then, which would be probably 150 pounds now, to ring home. I was there for about six months and I phoned home once and I had to book a telephone call through an operator who then I had to stand by the phone and they rang England and eventually got through and what a malarkey. Now on that very same beach last year, I think it was, or the same beach hotel, I sent my wife a text, you know, and just press the button. Everything's fine. <laughs> call you in a couple of days. It's that simple now. Mm. So when you do go off the radar and my son did when he had his hospital thing, um, you know, it, it, it's almost, it would almost, if you're being treated, you know, I know very often you're not allowed your phone to be switched on, 
but it's a great thing to say to the hospital if you're conscious of course if you can do it say look i desperately need to um uh you know get a message to home because sure enough you know we were fretting because he went off the radar for a few mm. days and then i had the very nice phone call saying hi dad been in hospital nothing to worry about i'm out now going going to a party of course you know that that's great then but it was being very reassuring had we known at the time because we could have acted i'm sure my wife would have gone into meltdown but then i you know sort of if i'd have had the um you know the, we, we did have a, a sort of plan um you know i could have started putting things into place um to, to find out what's going on so do, do have a plan um but i guess you know the big thing before you go research and sensible planning and then when you get there to wherever you go you can go absolutely nuts knowing full well that all that preparation is actually working beneath the surface to make it simple and for everybody else around you who thinks you're the most special person on the planet to not actually worry about what you're up to and you can then concentrate on going crazy so yeah that's fantastic well, thank you ever so much, Jonathan. I think that's been a, a very insightful conversation. And thank you very much for joining us on uh, our Safer Travel podcast. Thank you for listening to the third episode of Safer Travel Talk. To join us on this journey, make sure you follow the podcast on Spotify or subscribe if you're listening on YouTube. You can also follow us on social media and visit carolinesrainbowfoundation.org forward slash podcasts for more information. Thanks to Richard Stuttle for hosting the podcast and Chris Healy for producing. As always, safe travels and we'll see you in the next episode.